There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that, whilst emanating directly from the discipline, have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Have you ever thought about the role your diet could play in promoting mental wellness? Is it possible to eat your way to better emotional health? On today's podcast, our topic is Smart Food for the Brain, the Emerging Field of Nutritional Psychiatry, and I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Michael Burke and Tabitha Hume. Michael is a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Deakin University in Geelong, Australia, but in his distant past, he was in fact an alumnus of the University of the Witwatersrand here in Johannesburg, where he qualified as a medical doctor and specialized as a psychiatrist. And I must acknowledge up front that the use of the term nutritional psychiatry is taken from a paper published in 2017 entitled Nutritional Psychiatry, Where to Next, written by Felice Jacker a colleague of Michael's at Deakin University. Now, Michael has many research and clinical interests in the field of psychiatry, and one of them is the role of nutrition in mental health. Tabitha is a Johannesburg-based registered clinical dietitian with a focus on eating disorders, weight loss, diabetes, and lifestyle rehabilitation. Michael and Tabitha, welcome, and thank you for joining us. A reunion of sorts, as we've all worked together at different times, both academically and clinically. Just an opening comment. I mean, when one thinks of nutrition and health, generally one is focused on physical health. Yet psychiatrists and nutritionists working together is actually quite well established, for example, within the context of eating disorders, where such collaboration might be related, but not limited to, for example, caloric requirements for rest, weight restoration with regard to anorexia nervosa. However, today's conversation is going to take us down a somewhat different path the one of nutraceuticals in relation to psychiatry. Now, the most straightforward definition of a nutraceutical is any substance that is a food or part of a food and provides medical or health benefits, including the prevention and treatment of disease, which I suppose brings us to nutritional psychiatry. Michael, I'm going to start out with you. Is this the, is this the dawn of a new era? Well, I think that nutritional psychiatry is a new era. It really didn't exist until 10 years ago as, as a discipline. And it's really exploded from nothingness into a major mainstream research and clinical area. But even nutritional psychiatry does not exist on its own. It's part of a broader rubric of what people are now calling lifestyle psychiatry uh, or lifestyle mental health, which sees diet together with physical activity, healthy sleep, uh, reduction in uh, abuse substances uh, as part of an integrated lifestyle approach to complement existing therapies and in sometimes as a standalone for managing mental health issues. I think it's fascinating because actually what we're really talking about <clears throat> is such common sense. Um, you know, we're looking at what you eat, how well you sleep, what you put into your body in terms of, in this instance, I could say nicotine, alcohol, 
besides other illicit substances, physical activity, pretty much basic things. And it's amazing that at this point in our civilization, in our sophistication technologically, we come back to some home truths, some basics. How would you respond to that? Michael? Yeah, well, I think that those kind of basics uh, have always been part of physical medicine. We've understood for a long time that those have been risk determinants of illnesses like cardiovascular disease, right. diabetes, the metabolic syndrome. What's less well appreciated is that mental health disorders and physical health disorders share these determinants. So not only do they share these risk factors, and this whole epidemiology literature that these lifestyle factors are risk factors and prognostic factors for mental health problems, uh, that is a relatively new understanding. Right. And then the, the embrace of these as uh, as treatment modalities is a very new phenomenon. Uh, I mean, the first study is, that came out on, on nutrition as treatments are under a decade old. Physical activity is a bit older, yes. but it's certainly that's what, 15 years, 20 years is how long that's been around since the first studies came out. I think what's important about these aspects is that it certainly puts, I'm going to use the word control, for health in the hands of the individual who suffers from a condition. I think that's because very often, you know, there's almost a sense of futility with respect to response to medication, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to touch on that later. But I think that as as much as this is good common sense, I think what is important, and I think you've said it, is the emergence of data which actually provides a, a, a support for not just recommending it, but being able to say, well, actually, there's a scientific foundation for this, and we're seeing it. And as you say, it's 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 more recent in terms of emotional health because the focus has generally been physical health. But you're completely correct in saying that it's an empowering construct because yeah. lifestyle is, at least in theory, in the hands of people who have problems. Uh, and in theory, it could increase self-efficacy. The risk, if lifestyle is not well managed, uh, is that it can be blaming. Right. So you, what we don't want to do is create messages that, oh, this is your fault. But you know, you, you live on McDonald's and you sleep on, and you're on the couch the whole day. This is somehow your fault. So we really need to be very mindful in our messaging that these are messages of hope and opportunity, not messages that might convey, uh, Blame or guilt, because there's one, these are these are two these are are blades with sh with the uh, well, it's, it's a double edged sword. <clears throat> yep, they sharpen both sides. They are double edged. Yeah, and I think as probably with everything, there has to be a balanced approach to how we understand these aspects of our being, how we promote them, and how we, I suppose, use them going forward as opposed to using them retrospectively to say, well, because of this, therefore that happened. Because I think that the one thing I've learned in psychiatry, you know, association is not causation. And I think that that is a very powerful and important understanding to have when you're discussing. I think we see that with other psychiatric conditions as well. I mean, I'll just go back to eating disorders. If the patient has the problem and there are difficult family dynamics, are we saying the dynamics caused the problem or the dynamics arose as a consequence of the problem? And before you know it, you're not sure where you are. And if you're not careful, 
you can get into blaming and we don't want to go there because that tends to um, disincentivize people, it demotivates people and really what we're looking at is, okay, we're here, this is what you can do, let's see how we can make that happen. So I think the 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 era of nutritional psychiatry I think affords the discipline something very practical and something very concrete that is evidence-based to say – this is what you should be looking at. And obviously, we're going to look at the role of dietitians and nutritionists moving forward. But I wanted to ask you a very specific question just to kind of drill down into that, into that base. How robust is the data when we come to specific psychiatric conditions now? And I can mention obsessive compulsive disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, depression, schizophrenia. There are a whole range of psychiatric conditions where there seems to be an evidence base. Um, how robust the data is? Well, that's another question. And so that's what I'm, I'm putting to you, Michael. What is your understanding of the evidence base as it exists today? Well, nutritional epidemiology is complex. Uh, anybody who's ever tried to do uh, epidemiology work looking at nutrition knows that nutrition is a very heterogeneous construct. It's got huge number of elements in it. And nutrition is confounded by all kinds of other variables, particularly socioeconomic status. Uh, and, but, you know, the best epidemiology studies have attempted to control for these things. Right. And the, the bulk of the evidence is pretty clear, depending on how you, not, notwithstanding how you look at it, that there is uh, a link between diet quality and risk for mental health disorders. The evidence is by far strongest for depression. Right. Uh, you did mention other disorders like ADHD in yes. kids, anxiety disorders, where the evidence is not that strong. Surprisingly, the one area, the one discipline where it's lagged behind is the psychotic disorders, where uh, nutrition has almost exclusively been looked at in the context of drug-induced metabolic syndrome rather than as a risk factor in its own right. Got it. Um, and treatment has been looked at in that context. So I, I think uh, the the advanced guard uh, have been wearing depression colors, but other, yes. discipline, other disorders are, are very much following. But if we think about it more broadly, many of the, the pathways – that are affected by diet, that diet impacts, uh, are overlap with the risk pathways for many psychiatric disorders. So these are things like inflammation, oxidative stress, right. neurogenesis, mitochondrial function, gut dysbiosis, you know, gut permeability, all these things. They are fairly transdisciplinary. You know, they're not, they're not living in one, in one disorder domain. Uh, so, um, I think it's likely that we're going to find a impact on mental health far more broadly than just an impact on depression. Just speaking about depression, though, because obviously it's a big one, and I mean people speak uh, a lot about depression and anxiety. Um, anything more concrete or more specific in terms of what the studies have shown and what the recommendations might be in terms of depression? Well, in terms of the studies regarding treatment or the well, regarding mechanisms, which which studies the use, are you, the use about? the use of nutritional supplements uh, potentially to improve <clears throat> outcomes or to potentially prevent? So you know, moving more into the practical specifics of what substances right. are no, we talking okay. about? No, I, I fine. 
So let me start at the outset by making a very clear differentiation between diet, whole diet, what you eat, Mm -hmm. and supplements, because those paths have clearly divorced themselves from each other. The literature on the one is very is becoming clearer, and sadly, the literature on the other is also becoming clearer. So let me start with whole diet. So there's really good evidence that you can break diet down into two things. The good stuff that you should be eating more of and the bad stuff that you should be eating less of. So whole diet versus Western diet, ultra-processed diet. And these things actually act quite independently, even though they they, – so the more high-quality fruit, vegetables, uh, unprocessed natural diet you eat, the better it is for your mental health. The more Western diet, ultra-processed junk food type you eat, the more harmful it is for your diet. And they operate independently. Obviously, these things are linked, uh, but they, they are, but at least mathematically and statistically, they are quite independent. The second is supplements. And there was a lot of enthusiasm about supplements, uh, a lot of interest in things like particularly fish oil, zinc, yes. uh, you know, uh, magnesium, folate. I, and I have to say the most recent evidence, vitamin D, yes. is really looking disappointing. Ah. Uh, there's now several recent trials uh, of – I'll talk about fish oil first because yes. this is the one where there was the greatest promise. But uh, what's happened in the last few years is a number of very high-quality, methodologically rigorous studies have been done, which have been negative. The early studies have generally been small, more methodologically questionable, and they've been positive. And so I think fish oil is probably – if not close to dead as a recommended supplement, it's mortally wounded. Right. Uh, we just, I've, I've been involved in a couple of studies recently where we took fish oil plus everything else that we thought would work fish oil, folate, zinc, magnesium, uh, bundle them together in one super combo. And in our study, it performed worse than placebo. A more recent study, it uh, which used a very similar design, not the, exactly the same combo, but an overlapping combo, also numerically did worse than placebo. So, you know, I think the whole idea that you can go to McDonald's, live on Domino's pizzas, and and, and top up with vitamins, I think that whole notion is pretty much dead as a donor, uh, as a as a donor at this point in time. Now, anything yes. might change, yeah. but right now. There's no substitute for eating your veggies. And I think that that's very profound, actually. We were teasing out your general approach to nutrition versus augmentation or supplementation as some kind of compensatory mechanism. And what's being understood is that, listen, you can't live your life in a certain way, and when you develop a problem, pop a few supplements and everything is going to be much better and it's going to be okay. Because what you're doing fundamentally as a baseline is what's ultimately making the determination regarding your health. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing. Correct. And there's, it, it's in a way a little bit worse than that okay. because there's an opportunity cost of doing something ineffective. And that opportunity cost is that means you're generally not doing something effective. So if you think snacking a couple of vitamins from the vitamin superstore is going to solve your problems, you're probably not going to gym and you probably haven't changed your diet and you're probably not getting cognitive therapy and you're probably not going to adhere to your medication. 
um, because you think you can solve it with your vitamin super pills, and that's not going to happen. So there's there is often a cost over and above the ineffective treatment to sticking with therapies that are unhelpful. Well, I think that's very important. And so what I I think the take-home message has to be is that intervention in psychiatry is a comprehensive uh, group where you have different aspects that you need to be working on. It's not just one thing that is going to make the difference because otherwise we're going to be guilty of what would be a cognitive distortion, selective abstraction, where you're going to focus on one thing and kind of make it everything. And then when that doesn't pan out, then you're going to say, well, this is all just rubbish. And so that is the concern that I have is that nutritional psychiatry gets a bad rap because of negative studies unless you conceptually tease out exactly what you've said. Well, the first thing is that the core nutritional studies, the studies focusing on diet are not negative. They're positive. They're replicated. So there's now a solid evidence base that changing your diet improves your mental health. At least that is the case for depression. Uh, So I think that we all grew up in the era of biopsychosocial. Yes. And biological, psychological, and social are still current concepts, but we need to add lifestyle to it. Uh, So so my own take, and this is a – a tale I often tell patients uh, is the story of the Sky Cycling Team, who were the worst cycling team uh, to the point that no bicycle manufacturer prepared to give them their bikes because they just made them look so bad. So they took a principle which they called aggregation of marginal gains, which is a fancy word for just doing everything a little bit better. Right. So what they tried to do is 1% better Physio, 1% better exercise, 1% more aerodynamic bicycles, 1% better sleep. Uh, and when they did everything, it all compounded and they ended up winning the Tour de France. Right. And that's how I think you have to manage depression. You can't just pick one. You've got to focus on the psychological, the social factors, the lifestyle factors, the biological factors. Uh, and in some people, it's, it'll be clear that the social factors are more important or the psychological factors are more important. But uh, for most people, an integrated approach is where we uh, have to move. Uh, I, I think it's clear that there's no magic pill. There's no magic therapy. There's no magic anything, right? It's yeah. doing a lot of the small, simple things and sticking with them and persisting with them. And when you're not doing well, changing and moving to another another different treatment. So I think that so that's – yeah, no, and I think that that's exactly. I mean, the, the only concern I would have is that change of diet probably will occur within the context of a change of many other things simultaneously, because that's what you're really saying is, look, we've got to focus on all the aspects. Each one has to be incrementally jacked up so that we get a, 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 a an effect where everything is working together. And cumulatively, that is where we see the, the step up. And so my question would be, to what extent, if dietary change takes place, that's just coincidence in terms of the improvement? Uh- Dietary change in most people is in diet is an incredibly stable variable. Right. Most pe- it's incredibly hard for most people to change their diets. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to be very, and I mean, maybe I should hand over to Tabitha because yes. Tabitha knows much well, more she's... about this than I do. But I, I'll just, before handing over, just kind of say, um, that for the most part, what happens is that you set one or two small attainable goals. And each goal that is achieved increases the sense of self-efficacy and gives people the confidence to go on to the next small attainable goal. Yeah, and I think that's that's 
That's exactly right. And we're always kind of shifting the baseline incrementally upwards and we're creating a new foundation for health each time we take that step forwards. But I think, yes, it's time to bring Tabitha into the discussion because obviously we've been speaking about an evolving science, but ultimately for me it's about the practical utility. How do we make this real? And so the question is, should psychiatric patients be receiving nutritional counseling or support as part of a comprehensive treatment package? Because remember, psychiatrists are not nutritionists. They're not dietitians. So the question is to what extent? And I think typically the multidisciplinary team outside of eating disorders doesn't include nutritionists or, 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 or dietitians. But in terms of what Michael and I have been discussing, is that time now arriving where there needs to be a shift in terms of how we as a discipline understand the multidisciplinary team? Tabitha. Thanks. Yeah, it's a loaded question. <laughs> the loaded answer, yes. I couldn't agree with Michael um, more. Um, certainly in my 25 years of practice, what I found is much more effective is progress, not perfection. People come to me either with hypernourishment, so they've eaten far too much and now are battling with the uh, the symptoms of lifestyle disorders, diabetes, obesity, and of course, depression. You've got the causative effect there as well. Um but also we've got the eating disorders, the anorexics, the bulimics. And it's quite interesting because um, ubiquitously on social media, there are a number of nutritionists, self-acclaimed nutritionists who are very much sticking with single nutrient excitement. Mm. And they are putting out there saying, have zinc, it'll make your um, energy much better. Have vitamin B complex, um, don't have it at night, it'll keep you awake, which is piffle. Um, rather have it in the morning and have mega doses and injections and, 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 and suddenly everything will be okay. Yesterday, I had a very, very severely depressed diabetic, and I and she said to me, how much exercise must I do to lose weight? I said, how much are you doing now? She said, unfortunately, nothing. She was embarrassed. And I said, well, that's because you got depression. You're exhausted. So why don't we start with three minutes going up and down two steps? And she looked at me madly, and I said, watch. You will notice a massive difference. Really? Yes. And then she said, now, how must I eat? And I get that sitting on an airplane. How must I eat to improve my mood? And I, I'm so close to saying, well, you know, eat a lollipop every single day and you'll be fine. Mental disorders will go because it's never one thing. It's And then I eventually say, look, it's going to be an hour and a half of me explaining that to you, I'm afraid, and I cost a lot of money. <laughs> Um, and then it sort of shuts up the, the conversation. But it is true. And you've got to look at small changes, especially with someone with depression and anxiety. They are completely overwhelmed and they have been looking to this, to social media to be able to get their nutritional information. And it's staggering how appallingly bad and incorrect it is. So we, we as dietitians are fighting against that kind of um, pseudo-scientific uh, background, which makes life very, very difficult because we find we're debunking the myths more than actually giving information. Yeah. Getting on to the answer to your actual question. Okay. Um, yeah. You, what I have found the most um, powerful change within people is, number one, going in a very stepwise direction, but number two, going back to old-fashioned eating. And this is where that magical Mediterranean diet comes in. Um, I'm never going to give people uh, a string of vitamins, and there are a lot of uh, popular companies at the moment doing just that, and I'm quite vehemently against that. Um, 
just a simple matter of glycemic control makes an overwhelming difference to the amount of serotonin stability that there is in the brain. Number two, popular diets on the market at the moment are all very macro related. They <clears throat> put macros on your plate. Have you got your protein? Have you got your um, uh, carbohydrate? Have you got your, <clears throat> excuse me, have you got your veg- um, vegetables, etc.? And of course, don't have fruit because it's fattening. Rubbish. Um, <laughs> those kind of messages are there and we end up with a diet that is massively boring and impossible to stick to. So I work on very much looking at what the person loves, what the person likes to eat, and then we start formulating a plan that is based primarily on glycemic control. Then we start looking at the Mediterranean way of life, which is an, a Mediterranean Japanese. And I say, you know, quite frankly, I know this is an oversimplification, but you don't get fat Japanese poo people in the olden days. These Sumo wrestlers are big guys. Different story. <laughs> But it, it, it is true. And certainly with the eating disorders, the undernutrition side of it, they, they are all taking huge amounts of supplements and yet it's making no difference to their sickness. So yeah, we're looking at old fashioned nutrition, to be quite frank, yes. um, where you've got more than half a plate of fruits and veggies, a quarter of a plate of the right kinds of carbohydrates. And they can be mildly refined. But as you said, Michael, ultra refined is exceptionally dangerous. Very. And also a high protein diet changes the gut microbiota, but we'll go into that later. Well, I think the important issue is that often by the time people get to see you, they want something to happen. Mm. And I think that what is often not appreciated is that something happening starts with a very small first step. Mm. And you kind of consolidate that and you build on top of that. And so it's very much a process, not an event. But I think people are looking for quick fixes mm. and events. Mm. I don't like the way I'm feeling. Clearly, I'm doing something wrong. Let me just make a, a, an adjustment <clears throat> and boom, bang, we're going to be fine. And the truth is it doesn't work that way. Mm-mm. And I think that it's a process, as I said, not an event. And that's why I often say to people who are in quite a bad way, certainly my eating disorders and then my uh, diabetics, I say, look, to be frank, for the next month, I'm going to see you twice a week. And they look at me with big eyes and I say, we've got to get through a whole lot of real basic fundamentals that you can cope with over a couple of days at a time. So without a doubt, it's a process. And again, it's the it's the progress, not perfection um, mechanism that I work on. And the sort of more CBT model that you were referring to as well is, yes, it doesn't matter where we come from we're here now now what do we do and i think what's important is that we're looking because this is what i've understood from what you're saying we're not looking at manufactured food sources in Mm. in terms of supplements we're looking at food itself Mm. the actual food sources and i I wanted to get maybe a bit more practical vegetables fruit whole grain oily Mm. fish extra virgin olive oil etc i mean these are the kinds of things we're looking at quite practically beautiful absolutely um again where to start in what I normally do is I say to people, um, are you getting five a day? And overwhelmingly, they're not. So they're not getting enough fruits and vegetables, partly to blame from these, I'm sorry, twits that are on, on social media <laughs> saying, don't have fruits, yeah, because they're fattening. They got so much sugar. It's, I actually want to cry that I just immediately, I don't even explain anymore. I just say that's rubbish. So let's carry on. Have your fruit. Number two, not enough vegetables. Yeah, but vegetables are boring. And the reason they say vegetables are boring is first of all, they're not making them yummy. So I go into real practicalities there and make them absolutely delicious, cooking methods, fun, etc. And these people start having smiles on their faces. They're expecting me to tell them to have boiled chicken and, and salad. 
So, and this clean eating, also another one. Gosh, I mean, we can go on forever. Yeah. But the fruits and vegetables must be delicious. And I say that we've got to have massive portions of those. A lot of people also don't like salads and vegetables because they've been taught that they have to be plain steamed. Mm. And that is also very much the macro diet, the rubbish that's on social media. So we say no, 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 and no. In fact, I actually admonish patients who are eating things that are just plain steamed. Yes, of course, they're nice. But to get them back in and to make fruits and vegetables not the enemy, you've actually got to make them delicious. And let's start cooking like a Mediterranean, no, which well, is making them delicious. And for me, it's 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 quite basic where I mm-hmm. say to my eating disorder sufferers, patients, food is for two things, sustenance and pleasure. Thank you. And I think pleasure is yes. such a key component. Just because something is pleasurable doesn't mean it's mm-hmm. bad. On the contrary, you must enjoy your food and you should be really looking at what do I like but how do I find the balance in terms of what I eat? And I think that's, that for me is, 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 is a key message. But I'm understanding, mm. but I'm understanding this whole issue of lifestyle rehabilitation. Mm. Clearly we're talking about now we're moving beyond the physical. We're moving into the aspects of, of, of emotional well-being. And I just wanted to touch on the gut mm. because I think, you know, Michael and, and Tabitha, this does seem to me like another frontier. The, the sort of gut microbiome, the gut flora. And there's even a suggestion that probiotics are almost psychotropics in a sense in terms of what they could do to gut flora or to restore gut flora because disturbed gut flora has been associated with a whole range of, of, of conditions. So I'll open that up to, uh, maybe Michael can jump in and then Tabitha can follow. Well, you're, you've opened the door onto an incredibly hot area. I mean, the, the whole gut-brain axis is yes. sizzling hot. There's a huge amount of interest in the gut, in in, in the microbiome and the gut. Um, we we know that uh, the, the gut microbiome differs between people with psychiatric problems and those and 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 controls. Right. We know from animal studies, you can take poo from a depressed person, put it into a rat. And that rat will start developing symptoms that look like depression. And mm. you can take depressed-looking rats and take poo from happy people, and you can eliminate the depression. That's incredible. Um, now, we know that the most powerful influence on the gut microbiota is diet. Yes. So if you're eating a fiber-rich diet, low in uh, low in, in carbohydrates, low in saturated fats, you're more likely to have a healthy microbiome. But the... It goes way beyond that because we know that gut bacteria synthesize huge numbers of chemicals that the body needs. The best studied is one called butyrate, which has uh, important anti-inflammatory properties. One of the things we know about the, the microbiome is that if you have an unhealthy microbiome, you're much more likely to have systemic inflammation. And systemic inflammation not only drives depression but drives medical illnesses like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. We also know that if you've got a disturbed gut microbiome, you have a leaky gut wall and bacterial products leak into the bloodstream, which can cause inflammation. And we also think that a leaky gut can promote a leaky brain. Hmm. So there's a brain blood barrier, which gets leaky in the context of this whole process. So there's huge interest. It, from a patient perspective, if I have depression, the most important thing is to listen to a Tabitha and eat your veggies and stay away from the chips and the burgers and the pizzas and the 
That's the most important thing you can do to fix your microbiome. Do uh, probiotics work? Yep. Well, that's a complicated question. And I think the problem with probiotics is that a healthy microbiome has several thousands of different strains of bacteria. Yep. A probiotic will have one, two, maybe 10, and we don't know that they're the right ones or the ones that you need or the ones that you're short of. Uh, so the evidence is interesting, but I don't think it's a slam dunk at this stage. Um, one of the studies that our group is doing at the moment, we're calling the moving mood study, where we're actually getting fecal material and we're doing poo transplants. Yes, so I've heard of it. Down in July. Like in Germany. I have heard of that. And, you know, mm. when I was kind of made aware of it, I thought, wow, that sounds awful. So just explain a little bit more how a poo transplant works. Well, what you do is you take, you take donor poo from a, uh, a, a recipient who has been extensively screened both for medical illness, psychological illness. Their poos are screened for parasites and nasty bugs. Uh, and so the, the whole process of manufacturing and preparing the donor material is a really complicated and very rigorous one. And to be honest, it's by far the most complex element of the whole process. Right. The administration is pretty easy. You know, uh, euphemistically, there are two approaches. There's the top-down approach and the bottom-up <laughs> approach, right? I know which so one I would take. you can have a top-down in the form of what we call crapsules. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so you can have a capsule which is uh, has the donor material in it and is designed not to go, not to rupture until it's been digested by, by bacteria, uh, stomach acid. Right. Or you can have enemas. So right. we've gone the enema route because it's more robust. Yes. And because the evidence is clearer in disorders like Clostridium difficile infection, where it's not only remarkably effective but remarkably safe. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I mean, it's a brave new frontier. We don't know what we're going to find. Yeah. Um, but there are a couple of case reports. There's a uh, interestingly one published by a colleague of mine, Gordon Parker. Yes. Uh, with patient with refractory uh, treatment resistant bipolar disorder who went into remission with, with a poo transplant. So it's brave new world stuff. Now, right. I don't have to tell you that incredibly exciting case reports are often not replicated by well-designed, large-scale, randomized controlled trials. Yes. That's the case in the nutraceutical field yeah. and many other areas. So you, one has to be very cautious in saying we have the new Jerusalem. Yes. But it's certainly enough to get researchers very excited because there's something really interesting that we can research. And I think what's important also just to emphasize is the noxious impact of junk and processed foods on the yeah. sort of gut microbiome. And I think it's important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The most, the easiest way to change a microbiome is to change what you eat. Yes. Um, by far. Um, but that's not always the case. And it's I not always possible. And I, and I think so this is where the whole lifestyle rehabilitation concept with changing what one eats as part of a, a multi-pronged approach to improving general well-being and quality of life. I think that's what's very important that we're not just saying here's the magic bullet, literally a crapsule, but, uh, you know, we've got to move beyond that sort of one-dimensional way of looking at things and look at it mm. on, 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 on many levels. So I wanted to ask Tabitha, I mean, is the field of nutrition 
tracking developments in psychiatry? Because clearly, I mean, psychiatry is moving into that field. Is that field conscious of what psychiatry is doing um, as we move towards better mental health through better nutrition? It's a good question. Um, to be quite honest, if I may, um, the top dietitians who really are extremely evidence-based are tracking. Right. Unfortunately, it seems like there's a predominance of dietitians who are still stuck in the old idea of, well, if you follow um, uh, just an ordinary balanced diet, that's all you need to worry about. And I think it's important to be able to know a little bit more than that. Um, but certainly, if I can jump, if I can jump back uh, to what Michael was saying about the crab seal. Perfect. You know, it's quite interesting <laughs> about the the gut um, uh, microbiota. You, you, you know, it, it has been suggested quite strongly that the rise in autism has also been linked to a, a poor mi- gut microbiome. And, and I know the research is saying in the olden days when there was much more um, natural vaginal birth, you know, the very fact that the the, the child's face is down right. actually and, you know, that the child, the mother didn't used to have an enema first right. um, meant that there was going to be transfecal. Um, there was exposure. Exactly. So it's just quite interesting that with regards um, your uh, colic, etc., and then of course the, the the issues going on over an adulthood. They also did research in, and forgive me, I can't remember one of the more rural African states, which was fascinating, saying there was no autism or spectrum disorders in um, this these, this rural area. And what they found out was that a lot of the children actually w- w- sort of walked barefoot, and they had a high incidence of worms. Mm. And as a result of that, the um, immune uh, what would you call it? Uh, Response? Ra- no, the ratio okay. um, of your white blood cells was actually favoring a more, um, or I should say a less inflammatory environment, which was posed to be something that was in the brain. And this is the hot new issue. Interesting, yeah. Is inflammation. Mm. Michael, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of understanding that inflammation and inflammatory conditions seem to be at the core of so much mm. that we're understanding oh. About diseases? There's no question that inflammation is a really important parameter. It's also important not to overstate inflammation. Right. Because many people with established disease do not have inflammation. And the extent to which inflammatory markers are elevated in most psychiatric disorders is modest. Okay. Um, so we don't want to overstate it. But in terms of the autism stuff, I, again, I can just tell you one of the, one of the uh, research projects going on in our unit is called the Barwon Infant Study. So this is a study where mother-baby pairs have been uh, have been followed up since birth. And they have collected every single substance that a baby or a mother can excrete, from poo to urine to uh, nasal swabs to cord blood, everything. Um, and they've looked at the microbiome in kids and looked at what predicts uh, autism. And there was a signal. So the, the, the microbiome between kids who developed autism and those who didn't was quite different. And a particular bug comes out and it's called Prevotella. Okay. So very low rates of Prevotella in kids who develop autism. Right. But, of course, one must uh, be careful once again not to sort of hone in on one thing as if that's everything. Mm. But there's oh, a signal. Without question, that is true. Yep. But, you know, you, you, know you, you, you said earlier, Tabitha, that, you know, nature designed – the childbirth process so that the the very first thing that a newborn infant acquires is a mouthful of its mom's poo. Mm. 
<laughs> that is exactly yep. the way nature designed it. It wasn't by accident. Yeah. And the other thing that I find very interesting is babies have almost no instincts, almost no instincts compared to animals. Right. The one right. instinct that every baby has, which every mother scolds its child, is they put shit in their mouth. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> they put yeah. If there's a if there's a dog Good poo point. lying around, it's going to yes. go into a kid's mouth. My daughter did that. <laughs> so there you go. Good so there's point. something and that is, nature would not do that if it was bad for you. So there's something the instinctive. Evolutionary pressure is so strong that that behavior would have uh uh been extinct. Been extincted. Yeah. If it was v- not adapted. Viva coprophagia. <laughs> oh yes, no, we don't want to promote that. Okay. But what I am understanding is that potentially and, and and I don't want to be too simplistic about this, but we should be looking at diets that are pro-inflammatory because obviously given that inflammation is an issue, I mean, can we do that? You mean or anti-inflammatory? I, well, absolutely. So there, there is a thing called a dietary inflammatory index. Right. right. So you can, you can look at, take a, a food diary and then you can say, you can calculate how inflammatory the diet is. But I mean, you don't need a scientist to do this for you. You can just count the, McDonald's takeaway mm-hmm. co- containers and the pizza takeaways and how many chocolate wrappers you've got and how many packets of, of chips you've got in your, in your bin. That, that's your diet for inflammatory index. But if I think, you're eating that stuff, you're likely to have inflammation. But what I think is important is to understand what it is about what you're eating that is problematic. It's not just a caloric issue. It goes beyond that. Tabitha? If I can jump in there, yeah, yeah very much so. It, I was mentioning earlier the glycemic control. We do know that the 5-HTP transfer across the blood-brain barrier in order to be able to formulate the potential for serotonin is enhanced with insulin secretion. So therefore, a diet that is extremely low in carbohydrate, very low in carbohydrates, the keto, the banting, etc., is going to be somewhat depressive in terms of anxiety, etc. So it's it's not a good thing. And I see this, I find the banters are always irritable people. But (laughs) having said that, the next thing is we want to look at obviously avoiding the spikes in in glucose. Now, obviously, people are going for the McDonald's, they're going for the pizza, because those are all those ultra refined, quick release, wheat based carbohydrates. That stimulates a huge rush of not only serotonin, but also the dopamine. So that means that you're going to live with a high. And chasing that high as your substance of abuse is not unlike um, alcohol abuse and, and drug abuse, etc. So I look at patients and I see, are they spiking their glucoses very, very regularly? Interestingly enough, another quick release one is um, rice cakes, which everyone feels safe with. Mm. Um, corn cakes, we're looking looking at multibella and uh, we're looking at um, wheat-based, normal wheat-based pasta, etc. So a lot of things that people are having, even whole wheat bread, those things are going to spike your glucose and they're going to make you feel so happy and lovely that the brain, if it's depressed, is going to remember that forever. Mm. The next thing is obviously that high, high, high flavored food that you get with a high sodium, high sugar and high flour foods like Michael was mentioning, all the junk foods. People go for that when they're feeling depressed because their serotonins and dopamines get flooded and they feel so amazing. They're not going to forget that on a subconscious level. So you need to look at controlling their blood sugar levels. You've got to look at making their diet unbelievably delicious. And just by doing that, people start saying, okay, I have hope for eating healthily. Well, I think it's very important. Michael and Tabitha, we've come to the end of our time. 
But uh, I wanted to thank you both for sharing of your time, knowledge and experience. It's obviously been a privilege. And it does seem that with the advent of nutritional psychiatry collaboration between the disciplines of psychiatry and nutrition will potentially give rise to novel approaches to both treatment and prevention of mental illness, but one mustn't overstate that. I think that we need to look at lifestyle as a holistic concept, uh, but certainly better mental health is possible through better nutrition. So in honor of the Mediterranean diet, a few lines from the poem Italian Food by Shel Silverstein. Oh, how I love Italian food. I eat it all the time, not just because how good it tastes, but because how good it rhymes. And now a word from the spokesperson for the Adcock Ingram OTC Sponsors of Brave Initiative, Nicole Kappa. Now, Nicole is a pharmacist and runner-up for Survivor SA 2019. She's been the spokesperson for Adcock Ingram OTC Sponsors of Brave for about two years, but has been with Adcock Ingram as a product ambassador for many years. Nicole? Welcome. Lovely to chat to you. Now, listeners will have heard me mention Adcock Ingram OTC Sponsors of Brave as our sponsor twice per episode of each podcast. So now it's time and probably long overdue for you to tell us about this initiative and your role. Uh, Prof, it's really great and an honor to be here, um, not only in the Cliff Central studio, but in a chair next to you. And I think that initiatives like this one right here in these chairs is the reason why Adcocking Remote C Sponsors of Brave exists. You know, right here you've created a platform of bravery where you get to tell people's stories, where people get to share their own stories, and they can relate to people um, on a level of deep, deep, Courage, And I think, if anything, this last few years has pulled out an extraordinary level of courage within the average South African. Um, and funny enough, Adcock Ingram OTC started the Sponsors of Brave Initiative just before COVID. I wanted to ask that yeah. because it, it, it seems such a convenient coincidence <laughs> that we would have been faced with such uh, a, a challenging time. And there's the OTC sponsors of Brave. So the two are not connected, actually, but they've just kind of worked in terms of when they arose and they came together. I'm all for um, supporting things that fill needs and add value. And this initiative certainly has added value in a time it was needed the most. We've moved from a very perhaps a sarcastic, nonchalant society of mm. pre-COVID right. to a really um, – there is no space for that anymore. We are desperate for hope, for mm. inspiration, for connection, mm. for authenticity. And that's exactly what Sponsors of Brave represents. We started off as um, an initiative to recognize the bravery of our frontline healthcare workers. Absolutely. Um, and it moved to recognizing, obviously, pharmacists because Adcock Ingram OTC is so passionate about their um, – Frontline healthcare pharmacists, um, you know, at the cornerstone of every community is your local pharmacy. They are actually rebuilding the nation from the ground up on uh, every corner, whether it's your rural pharmacy, whether it's your uh, public sector pharmacy, whether it's your busy um, suburban local pharmacy. They are always there and often offering free advice and help just to support their communities. And it's in that vein that I think yeah. sponsors of Brave wanted to take that sentiment and expand it. And from there, 
initiatives like every South African getting up and dancing in the Be Brave Mzanzi Dance Challenge were born. You know, getting up, being brave, sharing some hope, sharing some light, um, doing something outside of your comfort zone. Um, and now even to, to platforms like this, like other TV shows that are out there working with ACOC and Remote C, um, on so the just, level of well, Daedalic Dapper, okay. interviewing brave South Africans, right. prominent South Africans who have done things in their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and Leah's out there interviewing, meeting them, hearing their stories. And it's to help inspire every South African that you can too, just by doing ordinary things repetitively day in, day out, um, with a little bit more kindness and a little bit more courage, mm. you can actually change the world around you and help to rebuild a better South Africa. Well, I like the fact that you, you know, you started out in a particular way looking at healthcare professionals, specifically pharmacists, who, let's face it, are very often your first point of contact, uh, before you get to the doctor or beyond that. And then built from that to encompass the entire community. So I think it's really become a very broad-based initiative that has moved from a select focus to a much broader focus. And I think one of the issues there is that Acknowledging efforts is also an encouragement to, to, to continue, to deliver the kind of service that one should as professionals, competently, professionately, and compassionately. I know that um, in the um, content that I saw, there was use of the phrase courageous kindness, and I like that because kindness is very, very important. And I think at a time like this and times that we've been through, kindness is critical. And I think it's incumbent on all of us, professionals, individual South Africans, to really think about what that means. Truly, Prof. I mean, if you think about, um, as a pharmacist myself, I yes. like to think of remedies and medications for ailments. Yes. And if we're looking at the ailment that our country and our individuals are suffering from, uh, whether it be, you know, loss of lifestyle, loss of lives, loss of income, or even just a loss of hope, the real ailment, the real medication there is the hope that comes from those acts of kindness. And perhaps it's just an awareness that we can live with yeah. that opens our eyes to there's somebody next to you that's going through something far worse how can I help them instead of getting stuck in this sort of stagnant space of feeling sorry for oneself um, and we there's so much we can do for one another learn from one another and it's the spirit of collaborative unity it it amplifies that kindness absolutely true and I I liked what was said as, as, as part of the content that I read the positive potential we possess as individuals. And I think that's very important for each one of us to appreciate that actually there is positive potential within each of us, no matter what is going on in our lives. We don't lose that positive potential. It might be suppressed. It might not be something that is readily accessible based on our circumstances. But I do think that sometimes how you treat others ultimately impacts about how you feel about yourself, and so it goes in a positive direction. Absolutely. Um, And I think that's why, you know, you're sitting here at this desk sharing your thoughts, sharing your years of wisdom and expertise. Um, it's almost a mirror for people to be able to resonate with things from their living room, from their car, to be able to identify with, with, you know, the sentiments that you're talking about or sharing about. Um, and it, it helps them open up and expand what is my positive potential despite all the negative situations and circumstances I may find myself in. Right. So here's a question which is maybe, you're the spokesperson. You might not have uh, insight into this, but where does this initiative go? Because, you know, I've seen many initiatives come and go. So they start out, there's a lot of rah, 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 everything looks good, all the intentions are good, and then it just ends. So the question for me is how does this 
um, create the possibility for its own growth beyond potentially the sponsor? That is possibly the best question. And um, I think I am such a I'm very passionate about evolution and change within individuals um, and even within organizations and brands. And Sponsors of Brave is the brainchild of Sudhir Rampasat uh-huh. of Adcock Ingram OTC. And he bore this initiative with the dream of rebuilding South Africa right. with adding more courage and more kindness and more compassion. But he is absolutely convicted, not just passionate, about right. it continuously evolving. So it is never the same. And there may be the same sort of veins or threads annually to be able to execute initiatives, Mm. but they're always changing. Um, And he is insistent that every time we do um, a, whether it be a a News 24 Sponsors of Brave initiative, whether it be a podcast, um, you'll be aware of this, whether it be a TV show, every time we do something, it needs to be different because it needs to be continuously asking the question, how am I adding value? And by stagnating and doing the same thing over and over, you're not adding value to a current evolving climate and, and world around you. Well, I think that's very important, this whole idea of constantly adding value. And I think what's important for me is that I've really understood that this is not a commercial venture. This actually comes from a good place of wanting to add value, of wanting to exhort people to consider how they might add value. And I think that if we think about the initiative within the context of adding value, it's a very fine initiative. I get so excited about it. I work in marketing and PR. And I don't often see, actually I hardly ever see companies taking what you would call marketing spend or marketing um, initiatives and turning them into the question, how do I add value, not just to my consumers, my customers, my clients, not just to my internal organization, but how do I add value to the world around me? And that has been the central campaign that Sponsors of Brave has uh, pioneered. Have you seen the initiative grow in terms of public awareness, professional awareness, and do you feel that it's kind of finding its way into the fabric of society, or is it too early? I love how you say that. Yes, it has sort of permeated that fabric of society, and especially in the healthcare sector. Right. If you walk into a pharmacy, you'll often find the the pharmacy staff wearing their proud Adcock Ingram OTC sponsors of Brave masks, you know, and they'll be very aware of the initiatives. And uh, it creates a sense of pride, not just in the initiative, but in their entire profession, in their career, and in those long hours that they've poured into what they're passionate about. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. Nicole? Thanks for joining us, and may the initiative continue to go from strength to strength. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.